Hey, quick note before we get started in this episode, because it's slightly different. We're introducing a new series of quick-fire interviews. We know not everyone can spend the time on our long-form interviews going well over an hour, so we're going to add some shorter segments with our quick-fire format. This is where we ask each guest the same kind of questions, broken into two sections. First, their thoughts on major areas of the sport of squash, and then two other areas that we learn more about their life. I love this section because I never know what people are going to say, and I've learned so much about the guests and new ways to try and do things. So we're going to try and do more interviews based on this shorter format because we're always up for experiments and trying new things. We're already full steam ahead on prepping for 2021 and looking to do even more. Thank you for all your support we've been getting, and your emails mean the world to me and the rest of the team. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So, Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say, you've sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash? I, I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments, I've been to professional tournaments, and you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to it. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. I think you nailed it. Is there anything else you, you might want to add? But I think you, you nailed it. That is, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. Because <laughs> I'm in like with hope. I've met Hope so many times and they've got into a little bit of conversation, but listening to that conversation you had with her, just she's just a squash through and through person. And I don't know how many listeners you get, but it doesn't matter. It's the fact that people can now relate to Hope as this person. Hopefully they're going to do that with me. I'm sure, because I'm quite a private person, I'm not, I've never been a person who hung around the squash circle of people. but. When I do, I've got some very good friends and they will probably know me, but there's a lot of people who saw me at junior tournaments and a lot of my juniors were top players in the country. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great way of bringing some of the personalities from squash. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. What about this? This call is being recorded. All right. Well, we're going to s- switch gears into, uh, and there's, there's two parts to this section of the quick fire. And there was another guest I had on that was deeply involved in squash too. And it kind of made sense that for squash podcast or where our connection is to squash to when I ask some of these questions. So we have two sections now. The first section is just called 90 seconds squash quickfire with Kelsey. <laughs> so I'm going to go through a variety of topics and we're going to give the, the 90 second clock on uh, you don't have to take full 90 seconds if you don't want to, Okay. but we're going to, we're trying to limit it of your observations or comments or experiences open to you and whatever you want to say about that topic. Are you ready? <sighs> okay. I'm ready. 
Okay. So the first one is professional squash. Yeah, I'm like a terrible uh, consumer of squash because I really like love watching it, but I don't do it that often. And I think that's something I need to work on. But I do, I mean, I love watching it when I do. And I think working at Drexel and having the US Open there when I was there was such, it was like the best two weeks of the year. I felt very empty when everyone like packed up and left. But no, I mean, there's just nothing better than watching our sport at the highest level and getting a sense of what the players are like on court and choosing your favorites for like no particular reason because you don't really know them, but (laughs) it's fun anyway. And I just am also like so impressed with like the women's level is so high. And Mm -hmm. I, I think part of that is the parody in squash. I think that's like really helped just women be able to pursue it and be interested in it. And they've really impressed me so much and, you know, just like kind of make you proud to be a woman. Some of the best matches that I've seen at the U.S. Open have been even in like the quarterfinals of the women's draw. I feel exactly the same way in, in all the same things. And A, I'm not a good consumer. And I think part of it is also because part of our roles that we've had, right? It's hard to just sit down. When you get two hours or three hours to just go watch what you want to watch in those environments, it's, it can be hard. But yeah, watching professional squash is some and live and in person and near the court. Oh, mm-hmm. it's just makes me giddy. I know. And um, <laughs> and there is an element, and I, I might have mentioned this previously, but it, I still believe in it, that within my role at U.S. Squash, and uh, I give a lot of credit to Kevin, the CEO, still the CEO of U.S. Squash, but he, with us and the staff, and, and actually with Drexel too, we made the conservative effort to make sure that we achieve parity and prize money. And mm-hmm. we, we had to fight the systems within our sport to break that down. Yeah. And so we were like, look, this whatever system there was, and it was a because at the time the men's and women's tour were separate, so they had different levels. They're like, we can't do this worldwide. This wouldn't be fair. And we really we worked within the system year one, I think maybe year two. So I can't recall whether it's year two or year three, but we just said no and we flipped the script where it's like, this is what we're doing. Call it what you want. It's gonna be parody and Oh, I'm sorry. The way that we pushed back on parity in payout was parity in scale. So there were 32 men and they wanted us to send 32 women for less money. And so we said, no, we'll do 16. So that's how we chipped away at it. And then finally we said, this is ridiculous. We want 32, 32, and we want to pay equally. But it was really hard at that time. And to your point about the, the consumer doesn't know any different. They just see the prize money. But that has had such a cascading impact that the women's matches are often just as, if not more entertaining, especially in the, the semifinals and the finals and all throughout the, the tournament. Yeah. So, yeah. I think you said and it better. Thank you but. for doing that. Because, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I honestly, like, we need people who, who do that, who have, like, platforms and positions of power to take that on and champion it. And that's how things change. I think there's this, like, narrative that women's sports in general aren't watched as much and they don't bring in as much money and that's like the justification for not paying equally yeah. but then it's like okay well the u.s women's soccer team which has won the world cup way i was about more to say than, that 100 <laughs> percent. like yeah. the men's they don't get paid as much and like they get watched more and have been way more successful so i think it's just a matter of people like you and kevin and u.s squash like taking that on and and then people will see through the result of it that it was really like the right thing to do. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your work. Well, and it's, 
No, but it's, I would say it's, we can, and I was going to mention the women's soccer, which is just, I mean, I was cheering for them, right? Like this needs to be addressed. And Mm -hmm. I was able to do, play a small role of what I did in the overall game. But I think there's an element we can always say, what can I examine in my life and where do I either spend my dollars, vote, you know, what work can I put in to try and make a difference? And that'd be my only thing I would encourage, like pick the way you might be able to contribute. Absolutely. I love that. So college squash. (laughs) Oh, such a a topic near and dear to my heart. I feel embarrassed that I haven't been able to watch as much college squash in the last couple of years because somehow it's just like always conflicting with my schedule. But, and then this year I was like, I'm going to do it this year. And then there was a pandemic. So that didn't happen so much, but it is like my favorite thing. I mean, there is just nothing better than being in the crowd with these people who, and and maybe sitting right next to someone who doesn't agree with you and, and still being able to like be cordial with them. I mean, I remember we played this. You're talking about refereeing? Well, I was talking about just like cheering in general for different, different sides mm-hmm. of the, the team. But when we played this match against Yale, I was sitting right next to a Yale parent and I was, you know, the coach of the Drexel team. And and at the end of this like unbelievable match that was like 13-11 in the fifth that it came down to the number ones and it was just so amazing. The father who had just lost turned to me and he was like, well, that was an exceptional match. And I think that that's something that, you know, college squash gets, sometimes they get a really bad rep for kind of the misbehavior. And I get that. And I I don't like that. And it was something that we always talked about with our students and tried to like help them with. But I also understand it because I have a temper. And so I think that there's like a part that's not looked at, which is like how most of the time these young people can be under so much pressure and working so hard for their teams and tired and exhausted emotionally and physically and mentally and they can still perform in a way that makes like us really proud. And I don't think we focus on that part of it enough because that's what was meaningful to me as a coach. And, and even just like watching them now that maybe some of them are still on the team and I can, I can see them play just to watch how, how proud you are of them as they grow and they handle themselves really well under pressure. And I actually like, think that the same can be said for them refing themselves because I, I know that that's controversial, but I think there's opportunity to learn how to be impartial under the hardest of circumstances when you have a foot in the game and you want it to go a certain way. And if you can transcend that and learn how to be fair, I don't know many sports where you can learn a lesson like that. So I just love college squash. I think it's so interesting and dynamic. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, team squash is just so much fun Mm -hmm. and it really gives you, I love that it brings what is an individual sport, but then it's you win or the overall cheering is with team results, Mm -hmm. which I also think is like part of life. Junior squash. Yeah. My experience with junior squash has been very different from, I think, a lot of other people. Like I never played it. And so my first experience was recruiting at a junior tournament. And I remember walking in and being like, this is madness. It's just crazy. Just in purely how busy it is and how high the stakes are. I know there was like a lot of pushback after the Atlantic article. um, And I appreciated Kevin's email or like letter that he wrote about it. And I think that 
it was a mischaracterization of what most junior squash is like. I think we, we do have a problem with access and how serious people can take it. But I think that that's also not all of it. Again, I didn't play it, so I didn't have that experience. Um, I played a different sport that was similar to it, just like in how competitive it was. And it really put me off of playing that sport. And I, you know, didn't want to do junior squash because I didn't want it to be like that. I didn't know if it was like that or not. But I think that, yeah, it's a it's a tough animal because it's like it really filters you into college squash. And sometimes I think the best junior squash is like the, the bronze level where kids are really just playing because they love it and they are like enjoying the competition. And yeah. Yeah, I think at any sport where you're trying to be the best. So, I mean, think of figure skating, soccer teams, like it, it just it actually goes on. And this was under my role of director of Team USA and working with the USOC. And we get to network with a bunch of other people from different sports. The similarities were always there. It's always a challenge. How do we get the best performance out of the players? And then it's how do we select them? And those tensions, because people are investing so much of their time and they care about the outcome so much, tensions rise. Yeah. It's unavoidable. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like if you look at, I don't know if you've ever seen like soccer tournaments or like where they, they just go and play for the college coaches like it is so intense there too so i i don't know i don't yeah specifically. it's across the board i mean look at little league baseball there are lots of examples of parents and empires having disagreements i was gonna say maybe <laughs> it is really about like the parents <laughs> leading a better example and, and hopefully yeah if i'm a squash parent i can live up to that because i'm sure it's really hard to watch your kid and not get invested Yes. I, I think to spell that out, I think it's the parents who have to wrestle more with this. And part of it is because going back to young performers who don't know and they think something's unfair. And if you if you think that something's unfair to happen to your child, you're going to have a reaction to it, right? There's a cascading impact. So, yeah. Switching gears slightly, but then refereeing. What are your thoughts on refereeing? Yeah. And there's like a lot of debate about refing, and I, I really do. It's such a hard problem because I love, I do love that like the college kids ref themselves often, but it is not a perfect system. And I can see when it goes wrong, how problematic it is. I just think there's like a good opportunity for growth and learning there, but you have to be like led by people who are doing that teaching. <laughs> so it's like a, a complicated problem. And then I think, you know, in pro squash, like, I don't know. I mean, it's so controversial. I would, I mean, I listened to your talking to Hope Prokop, who is like a good friend of mine. And I was like, just appreciating her even more for putting herself out there like that, because I don't know if I could take the scrutiny that you get. You're just never going to make everyone happy. And like, that's not the job anyway, but I don't think I could do that. I think it's just too much, too much at stake there because people see it different ways. I mean, my only thought has been that like, I do think that People who played at a high level make really good refs, often make really good refs because they are aware of what's going on on court in a way that's hard to know if you just have never played that way. I'm not putting myself in that category, but I do think that players make good refs often because they know what they are able to get and who's blocking and whether it's like a bad shot and, you know, all that stuff. I will say, and I do agree Players have a unique starting line from, let's just say you're trying to get better, you're trying to be the best referee. You have an interesting starting line. However, if you're then not acknowledging, there's a different skill set to learn. So you're farther ahead. But there's a gentleman I used to coach in Chicago 
he was around 3.0 to probably 4.1. Like he got better over time and, and that. And he, we would watch matches together and he was in 90th percentile all the time. Wow. Like he just under, he loved the game and had a feeling for it, right? Yeah. He was a lawyer, but he just, he just had this mind that he could understand it because he absorbed all of the various nuances that you just described because he loved it so much. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of it, you're right. There are nuances that if you haven't experienced, you might not appreciate. Yeah. And I'm not like close to the, the idea that someone couldn't learn it really well. Cause I, I know there are great refs out there who haven't played professional squash. I totally acknowledge that. I yeah. would not want to be one of them. I just like can't. It's, it's a really hard role. Yeah. No way. What about, and this is a tough one, but just desired future plans for the sport. Like, is there anything if you could, you know, you're suddenly in charge of everything in squash and you'd be like, well, I think we should go this way or what would you want for the sport? I mean, I think for me being someone who grew up and played at a public club and kind of came about it in like really a roundabout way. Dominic Hughes was my coach at Berwyn. I think Berwyn was the first public club in the country, which made it possible for me to play. And I really appreciated like the access to it. And I think that my main hope for the sport would be that we can reach out and that we can incorporate like a whole massive group of people who have not been able to play. And I think that the urban programs around the country are unbelievable. I think that they've done just like the best job. And if we can continue to build off of that and make it accessible for people really up and down the socioeconomic ladder, I think that could just, that just would change everything for us. And it would make it, I mean, there's so much talent out there and there's so many people who would appreciate the sport who could contribute to it that we aren't reaching. And so like, that's always been my hope. I, I think it's important to me that we aren't just like a country club sport going through. And I, and I know that there are so many people working on that. I so appreciate all the work that they've done in every facet, like in U.S. squash, in these individual programs, um, in every city. I just like so appreciate that work that's being done because it's, it's really important to me. I agree too. And there's a gap in my assessment for us as a sport where we haven't really fully rallied, pun intended, around a vision for the sport. And I think what we have been so used to is we keep pointing towards the Olympics as the kind of like, let's get in the Olympics, right? And I think that that would change overnight the economics involved in the sport, which then if you have the economics, then a lot of things change. So, right. and part of this is, I feel like it falls back on me to, to like, if I keep complaining about it or I keep seeing it and I'm not doing something about it, well, then that's on me. But like, I would like to see a vision that we're getting behind like, Access 2021 or something like that, which I know U.S. Watch is doing and, and a bunch, but it's, I think we all need to play a part in that and we all need to be at the grassroots level. Like, what can I do yeah. to help? So. Absolutely. I know I, I often feel like I can't complain because I'm not like actively doing anything to help it, but I see that in my future. So the one piece of advice I would say is for 2021, because I know we're almost done with 2020. Well, and I'm, I know I'm saying this under COVID environment, so let's just say this is a non-COVID environment, <laughs> but bring five new people out onto the court, mm -hmm. right? Like that is the power of the invite in exposing and just bring five and all five of them hate it. Okay, <laughs> well, you tried. Then, then the next year you bring another five, right? So in five years, you've brought 25 people on. Yeah. I dare say 
even if it's one out of 25 or pick a number, that's actually, that, that's what fuels the sport. So absolutely, invite five friends in a year. Yep. That's my advice. I like that. I'm going to do that. All right. Now going into the non squash <laughs> section of the quick fire and uh, feel free to, um, you know, these are some standard questions we ask every guest. And if they go nowhere, it's no problem. It's on me. But uh, it's just always interesting to unearth new answers. So we start off with an easy one. Just do you have a favorite documentary or movie? Mm. Oh, documentary or movie. Can I, I have two, those are very different categories for me. I feel like I have two. I know. If you had to pick as a recommendation, which one would you go? So for my favorite movie has always been Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I really like Charlie Kaufman because he's just like, I don't know, wild. And I like movies that kind of like stay with me, you know, like kind of, yeah, they like stay with me. And so I love that movie. Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, they're awesome. And my favorite documentary I just saw recently, it's called 13th. It's about the 13th Amendment. And my favorite DuVernay, it's just really important to watch right now, I think. Mm-hmm. And I can't recommend it enough. It, just to like kind of help, it helped me open my eyes a little bit more. And I don't know ton about the Constitution. And so that was helpful for me to just learn a little bit more. And it's done in a really well, really good way. Yeah, it's a very powerful documentary. And it, there's another one, very different subject matter, mm-hmm. but I think it was very comprehensive as well. And that's the the social dilemma. Both kind of top the way that it approached it was we might know each part of this as like a individual aspect, whether it's for the 13th with the voting rights or, or or this or incarceration, but then to see it all within, you know, I think it's 90 minutes or so. It's just so well done. And it's powerful and it's it brings together in such a compelling narrative of the reason why we we're in the position that we in as a country and it gives a greater level of understanding like you said what we do next that's i think the day-to-day challenge and and how we move forward but it certainly <laughs> brings greater context and of understanding this is an interesting question for you <laughs> what is something that gets you fired up now this can be, uh, I'm going to give some quick parameters. This can be in squash world or out of squash world. And it can be either something positively that gets you really excited or obviously the negative of like, oh, I get so frustrated. So that's the question. What gets you? I'm only laughing because I feel like we all know that I get fired up yeah. about stuff in the good yeah, or bad exactly. So yeah, for me, what is it that gets me most fired up? I feel like, you know, I'm always trying to be more positive in my life, but I feel like I, feel like I have to go negative on this one. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, like, it's it's everything that we have talked about already today. It's like kind of what I've structured my life around, which is just like, and I have been this way since I was a child. I just, whenever I feel like something is unfair or unequal, like if there's inequity, like I just, I hate it so much. And it's, it's been like a driving force in my life to learn more about it and learn more about the experiences of others. And even like learn about my own experience, which like, I think sometimes we don't fully understand until we see it in the context of a larger structure. And I think it has been, what's that old saying? Like the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off or something like that. (laughs) I didn't know that one. That's a good one. It is a good one. And I think that I have finally 
I feel as though I'm coming through the other side of it where I'm like less pissed off and more like, okay, what are we doing about it? And how can I help? And what can I do that's going to make a difference? And I think if you spoke to some of the people on my teams that I've coached, especially like, no, I would say like both teams, but especially the women's team, like this is something that we talk about a lot. And just like how on an individual basis, like you can help that inequity or people who are facing it and how they deal with it effectively. Yeah, that could almost sound like that. Uh, that's my answer. Let's go to the opposite side then. So what is something, and it can be literally like something physical, like a, a water bottle, what have you, or an activity that brings you disproportionate happiness? And the one caveat here I'd say is, you know, obviously uh, potentially friends and family, friends or pets would bring us, those are the obvious ones that bring us a lot of happiness in life. But so what is sort of the non-obvious thing that you do that brings you disproportionate happiness? Oh, I was going to say my dog, but I can't say my pet. <laughs> I mean, if it's truly that, that's fine. But like my dog brings me so much happiness. I just feel like that. That's uh, I'm, I'm going to go. Yeah. So what is the non-obvious thing that you do? I mean, this is very simple, <laughs> kind of stupid, and I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but if I get a good night's sleep, I'm just a better person. <laughs> I can take on any challenges, like I'm more positive, I'm kinder, and like, I just, there's no better feeling for me than like really feeling like I've gotten a full night's sleep, which I think as I've gotten older has been more elusive, <laughs> so I appreciate it more. I don't know, that's such a... No, I, it's a brilliant one because then also here, it's not obvious how to get good sleep, right? And I think it, it can be personalized, but there's also some universality to it. So A, like we sleep better in a colder environment. So mm -hmm. lower your temperature down, right? Mm -hmm. If you're someone that is sensitive to the field and you need to invest in a good pillow and invest in good sheets, if that will help you. So there's a bunch of ways that you can tackle it. Here's a big one for me was, um, and I used to get around this by um, sunlight. If it comes into your room, I used to put on the, the mask on the eyes, but then I would still oh, I be waking that. up. Yeah, but I'd be waking up early. Then I learned if there's sunlight coming into your room and your skin is exposed to it, the skin will start telling you to wake up. Oh, that is so interesting. So this is why where I go, I have blackout curtains. You know, and again, that, and you're right because, yeah, I just feel better. And it's still, even with all those things, I'm not sitting here saying I get a perfect eight hours per day and all that stuff. But it's also how I react to if I do get woken up in the middle of the night, I used to get really angry. And then I'd be forecasting what my day's going to look like. And suddenly I'm not in a good, not feeling great versus just now I kind of approach it like a, you know, like a tough match. Like you're going to play against an opponent in squash and like, this is going to be a tough match, right? Ugh. But you don't give up and you don't get angry. You're just like, you're kind of mentally preparing for what's coming next. Totally. All right. The next question is, if you're going to give a TED Talk, are you uh, familiar with the... Oh, I watch so many TED Talks. I love <laughs> okay. I, I love watching them too. So, but here the, the rules are, it couldn't be about something that you're known for. So, mm. what would be something that you would want to go explore and share or something that you already do, but people don't know you for it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Like something you would go research and bring your research to the forefront. 
Yeah, or, or you know, there's something, well, people don't know about this about me, but I'm a chess master, right? Like, <laughs> for you, that would be, okay, well, that's, <laughs> we didn't know that. So it can either be something that you're just not widely known for, that you already have a hidden talent, so to speak, or something that you're curious about to go learn and explore. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of a project that I did in, when I was in grad school, actually, that has led to like some of the work that I do with my students, which <laughs> is like, I'm really interested in sex education in this country. And actually, there's a woman who did a TED Talk on it, who I like who started me down this path of interest and her name is Peggy Ornstein. And she just talks about the difference between like sex ed in this country and in Holland and how they have like really different outcomes that we would aspire towards, but they just go about it really differently. I thought that was so interesting. And I think that I see it every day. We have a lot of pregnant and parenting students at my school and I'm, I'm interested in like the cultural aspect of it and the way that people think about it because I think it's different from community to community and that just fascinates me. And I wonder how we could have a more comprehensive like sex education and more like I would say just openness about talking about it because it is something that like everyone does. So isn't that something we should talk about with, with kids, especially who are starting down that path? My joke I was going to say early on is like what sex education, which I think highlights the fact that there isn't a lot of education in this area. And perhaps I'm saying like when I went, you know, as a teenager, or even you probably want to start earlier than a teenager, but that wasn't really talked about. And also in this case, I think that you do want messaging specifically for boys. You do want messaging specifically for girls, but then also like together, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, That'd be fascinating. We like separate it and it's very gendered and we have a lot of abstinence only in this country. I think that's what you're alluding to and it like does not work. So yeah, which really interesting. Yeah. Which by the way, I think there's high benefits to abstinence. The difference is that not talking about it doesn't solve any problems. So make every choice you want like and say, try it. I mean, I would say the same thing is like that relates to alcohol, that relates to drug use where saying just don't do it won't work. It's what's your relationship to alcohol or drugs? And if that dependency goes up, perhaps there's underlying issues that need to be addressed. Throw back to mental health. So <laughs> Yeah. I mean I think in her podcast she talks about how when people are more open, especially with young women, they actually get the outcomes that they want, which is that women have sex at a later age and they have fewer partners and they are more protected. And so it's like talking, like to your point, talking about it does not mean that everyone's going to have sex. Like sometimes people do choose abstinence. It's just that they're like better informed about it. You mentioned a name at the beginning. I I think I missed that. Who did you mention? Her name is Peggy Orenstein for anyone who's interested in Mm -hmm. a good talk. Great. The last question, bringing this to a close is I usually ask if, if there's any books that you would recommend, but I, I'm also, since this is a podcast, are there any books or podcasts that you might recommend to others? Mm, I am a big podcast listener. I used to be made fun of for it when I was in school because I'd be like, I heard this podcast. And it's like, of course it did. So I have, <laughs> I have things that come to mind. There's this great podcast that I just listened to called 1619. It's like a New York Times podcast. And they just talk about the history of slavery in this country and how it 
really still stretches into today, which I found very interesting. I, I just learned so much. It's pretty short too. And then there's like the psych podcast, like Hidden Brain and Invisibilia that I love. I like that. Something about- I like them. Yeah, nineteen six. Sorry, sixteen nineteen. That was a tough one to listen to. I I kind of had to take a break from it because it was that hard. And then there was another one that I started listening to, Constitutional, and uh, there's another one where it talked about prohibition. And all basically, when we go when we go back to those errors, it just shows how prevalent the injustices were, and it goes back to the roots. And it's the injustices, in my opinion, still very much prevalent today and we need to reconcile it but it, it helped give context that this is the fight is still there and it's we've all uh, different generations have fought it at different points but it's still not solved and you know i think we need to do our part yeah absolutely and i was going to mention oh another one that was just really oh there's a podcast called nice white parents that i listened to recently as well and it's like more current but just how like we can have our best intentions, but if we're not aware of like everything that's going on and who we might be bulldozing in the path towards what we want, you know, those inequities continue. So that's a good one too. Yeah. That was another great one. And, and also how I love the comparison that it was set more recently, but then also like, oh, this happened 50 years ago. And like you said, all with good intentions, but then not the, what we probably say is desirable outcomes. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're going to bring this to a close and I appreciate all the time that you take and, and sharing and talking on some topics that, you know, not enough people are, are always comfortable sharing. So thank you. And the sport is obviously fortunate to have had someone like you dedicate so much of your life. And I know you'll still continue to have it involved in the sport, but thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do. Well, thank you, Connor. That's so nice. I really appreciate your podcast. I love like what you're doing and I think it's, it's awesome. So thank you for having me. Anytime. We got to do one again in the future. So uh, get the updates. Thanks, guys. That wraps our first quick fire breakout segment. If you want to hear full length episodes, you can go to Squash Radio using your preferred podcast listening method. We love hearing from you, what you like, what you don't like, suggestions on what you might want to hear on this channel, or recommend a story or a person to be interviewed. You can reach out on any of the social media platforms or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again, and until next time.